Would you please turn with me and your copy of the scriptures to the first letter from John. In 1 John chapter 4, this will be where we'll rest in in just a little while, but we'll just get there for now. Now, if you've been tracing along our sermon series in their shoes, we're looking at Jesus through the eyes of the disciples. Really on a theme here of learning what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and Lord willing, if he tarries, in the new year we'll be learning what it is to make disciples. How does God use us, and how can we give of ourselves to proclaiming Christ, making disciples, as our church motto is this morning? Well, the last two Sundays we've been looking at Jesus through the eyes of Peter and James, who are listed first among the lists of the disciples. Now, Peter, we discovered that Jesus was Peter's rock. We learned about the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through the life of Peter. It was not 70 times 7. It was more than that. It was that Jesus' forgiveness for you and I, for those who come to him, is limitless. It's measureless. It's inexhaustible. Do you believe that? Likely this week you have betrayed the fact that you have not truly trusted that Jesus is all-forgiving, ever-forgiving. Well, last week we learned that our Savior is really the most merciful being in all the universe through the the life of James. The title was Jesus, James Thunder. And while James would love to have God to pour down thunder upon those who don't measure up in James' standard to those who are deserving of God's love, he would have Jesus rain down fire upon Samaria. Oh, James would learn that Our Savior does have thunder, and it speaks through great, great mercy. Well, this morning we find ourselves looking at the third in the list of the disciples, and this is the beloved disciple, John. And I was debating about what the title should be on this message, and at the end I wonder which one really feels like it settles well with you. And so the title of the message this morning could be Jesus, John's Love, if you could flip that slide. Or is it John, Jesus' love? See if you can answer that question for yourself at the end. Really, uh, maybe put your name in there instead of John. It's really the intention. Which emphasis? Is it fair to even put you in that corner and ask you to choose? But as we begin our sermon, let's pray together before we get into our passages. Father, this has become the highest standard of a love letter that any human could put their eyes upon. How often do you demonstrate in the Word of God your powerful love and intention towards your people? How many words have you used? To describe who you are. What kind of words have you used to demonstrate that words just come to an end when it comes to describing and ascribing the kind of God you are, what being in all the universe could say? That they are love.
God, we will dedicate the next few moments to looking at you by the Spirit's help and to find you to be love. But this will be our pursuit throughout all the ages to discover the depths of love that you have for those whom you have redeemed. Father, let us sit here this morning as ones who have never been so loved and not be bored by it or distracted or apathetic, indifferent. But spirit of love, ignite a flame in our hearts this morning and do every work that needs to be done in our loveless hearts. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are a number of times in John's gospel when John calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And as we get into this sermon this morning, really, we're going to be talking a lot about the love of Jesus for disciples. And at the end, we're going to draw some conclusions, some applications that I think we need to submit ourselves unto. But in a survey of passages uh, describing the one whom Jesus loved, using those words, that is really our sermon text. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's, that's, that's our text this morning. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Now John uses that to describe that he is the author. By, by, all, by all critique of his gospel, we find that he is, he is that one, although he never names himself as that. But it's significant that we find that the times when he uses that term are actually really some of the most climatical times of when Jesus was walking this earth. For example, in John 13, 23, John is gathered around the, the Lord's table, the Last Supper. And everybody's wondering who's going to betray. And in John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. John saying, I was there. Then at the crucifixion in John 19, verse 26, Jesus looking down from the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Well, we have the Last Supper and we have the crucifixion. We have the resurrection too. And in John's second to last chapter, John 20, now on the day of the week, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon and Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid them. So Peter went out from, with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple this is John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Then following the resurrection, 
And the disciples had gone to Galilee and were out fishing. John was the one who recognized the risen Lord in John 21, verse 4. Just as the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciple did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them later on in verse number 20. And he leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that had, was going to betray you? So John is a significant figure, and he sets himself apart in his writings by not saying his name, but then by using this unusual phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, let's remind ourselves a little bit about who John is. John is the, James, the, the brother of James. He's another one of the sons of thunder, another one of those who desired the, one of the highest thrones. He's one of those who said to Jesus, do you want us to call to the Father to bring down fire from heaven on Samaria? Well, he's the younger brother of James, not just the brother of James. He's the little brother of James. We meet him actually in his first chapter of his gospel, and he's actually been following John the Baptist, who's been a faithful Elijah-like prophet, is declaring and preparing the way for the Lord. And as soon as John the Baptist points to Jesus coming to him to be baptized in the Jordan River, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and, and James and John then follow Jesus from that point on. Well, he's a partner in the fishing company as a son of Zebedee. And we know that John wrote this gospel, the gospel of John. He, he wrote three short letters. We call them 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then we also know, of course, that he wrote the great apocalyptic revelation, the last book of our Bibles. John was a black and white kind of guy. When you read through his writings, especially his letters, he just sees things as very clear. He's very discerning. But he's a, a rugged, hard-edged, assertive kind of guy. We find out perhaps some of the, the fortitude, even physically, maybe even of his spirit, his character, lent him to be part of uh, really the last disciple who would walk on this earth. Um, it could also be that he was one of the youngest disciples. One of the theologians and scholars has remarked that perhaps he was the youngest disciples. Well, the fact is that he was really captivated by the love of God, especially as he looked back on all of what God had done. And he writes the word love in his writings more than 100 times. I think this would speak to the fact that we would call him the apostle of love, and this is why. The word love appears 57 times in his 21-chapter gospel. And then more often than any other, the three Gospels combined, you take Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you try to find the word love in them, it still is way, more, it's way less than 57 times in one book. Additionally, 46 times in the short five-chapter letter in his first epistle. 46 times. Well, tradition and history records that the end of John's life came about in this way. John was ordered by the emperor Domitian to be sent bound to Rome, where he was condemned to be cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. But there, reportedly, a miracle was wrought in his favor, and, and the oil didn't 
do him any sort of harm. And Domitian, not being able to put him to death, decided that there was some sort of superstitious preservation upon him, and in some ways, rightly so, not superstitious, but sovereign. He banished him to Patmos to labor in the mines around A.D. 73. He was the only apostle to have escaped really what we would think of as a violent death, even though we consider him to be a martyr along with the other apostles. It's likely that he lived to be nearly 100 years old. He died around A.D. 98 during the reign of another emperor, Trajan. Somehow he was able to get leave from Patmos and Theologians believe it's quite possible that, especially Josephus, the historian, that he was able then to enter back into the fellowship of believers, and that they would have to carry him because he was so weak. But they said that what he would murmur, what he would speak, which were very few words when he was among the people gathering at nearly 100 years old, he would say, my little children love one another. He would say, it is God's command. If this alone be done, it is enough. Well, looking at 1 John chapter 4 and beginning of verse number 7, we find how he expounds on love. So often we come to this passage and we want it to be instructive for us on how we love one another, but we need to firstly see how John views the love of God. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse number 7 in 1 John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but for perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Well, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. With John's greatest glory and his greatest boast, 
The thing that he was most proud about in his life was what? What do you think John was most proud about in a, in a good way? Was it that he was the one who outran Peter to the tomb? That would be kind of fun to have that bragging, right? Was it that he got to eat the last meal with the incarnate Christ, the pre-glorified, the pre-crucified Christ? Was it that he got to see Jesus in his resurrected body there on the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee? What do you think John's boast was in? Well, John's greatest glory and his boast was that Jesus loved him. That was his boasting. That was his significance. That is what made him feel special. What is it that you and I take pride in the most? Think about that for a moment. What makes you feel significant? And when it's missing, you feel insignificant. For John, his glory, his boast was that Jesus loved him. And really, it's a wonder that Jesus loves us at all. As we had read, Jesus died for the ungodly. Like James the son, and John, the sons of thunder, they were vehement with anger, had a quick fuse and temper, compulsive and selfish in their request for the higher throne than the balance of the disciples. And John demonstrated like his brother James that he was intolerant towards the heathen Samaritans. So what was it that caused Jesus to come to John? And what was it that caused Jesus to come to you and me? Well, the faults of John, our faults, well, they're repulsive. You know, the fact is that we're irritable. We're annoying. But far, far beyond that, we have a sinful condition of, of rebellion and wickedness before coming to know the love of God. There's no reason of ourselves that Jesus should come to us. And there was no reason that John should experience the love of Jesus. So what is it that causes Jesus to come to you and to come to me to love us? Well, it's his love. It's his love, not our loveliness, not our lovableness. We're not puppies. You know, we're not cute and cuddly to God in our sinful rebellion. We don't have big eyes. We don't even look as good and as pitiable and as lovable as those commercials of those dogs in the kennels that you need to send money to save them because they're being abused, you know. We don't have the puppy dog eyes. We have weapons. And filth and ungodliness and immorality and iniquity and iniquity and trespasses and lovelessness. 
You see, it is his love that causes him to come to us, not the fact that we're lovable, not the fact that we're cuddly, and he just wants one. It's his love that causes him to come to us, not our love for him. That's not what causes him to come to us. You see, it's all in him and not in you, not in me. Horatius Bonar, a a hymn writer from the 19th century, wrote many hymns, but one of them was called, Not What I Am, O Lord, But What Thou Art. And I think he really encapsulates this idea that, that it is Jesus' love It is who Jesus is that causes him to love us. In the Old English, he says words like this in his song. Not what I am, O Lord, but what thou art. That that alone can be my soul's true rest. Thy love, not mine, bids fear and doubt depart and stills the tempest of my throbbing breast. Thy name is love, I hear it from yon cross. Thy name is love, I hear it from yon tomb. All meaner love is perishable dross, but this shall light me through time's thickest gloom. Girt with the love of God on every side, breathing that love as heaven's own healing air, I work or wait, still following my guide, braving each foe, escaping every snare. He concludes with the last verse sounding like this. Then more of thyself, O show me hour by hour. More of thy glory, O God and Lord. More of thyself in all thy grace and power. More of thy love and truth, incarnate word. Well, John said it and Horatius Bonar made music into it. We love Jesus because he first loved us. Jesus had a pure desire to be loved by his own. We are loved with an everlasting love. Christ loved and he died for all. He loved and he died for each one of us. And John seems to be the only disciple who's present at the cross to witness this. There's an illusion in Acts chapter 4 that Peter might have been there to see it. But John is there to see the love being poured out by Jesus. And it so deeply moves him that it impacts him. It changes him from a son of thunder to become the apostle of love. Jesus was the last, I'm sorry, John was the last friend whom Jesus spoke to before he breathed his last breath. Son, behold your mother. So the apostle John became the apostle of love. Not because the love that he had for Jesus, that's not why he has given this moniker, but primarily because of the love that he knew Christ had for him. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. I like how Charles Spurgeon, the imitable prince of preachers, described the disciple whom Jesus loved and how this works together in our understanding. Well, Spurgeon says, so far from there being any pride in it, it just shows the simplicity of John's spirit, the openness, the transparency of his character, and his complete self-forgetfulness. 
self-forgetfulness. I'm just the disciple whom Jesus loved. Jesus, I'm sorry, John wasn't saying that Jesus did not love others. So by putting this in, in his gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved, you know, saying Jesus didn't love Peter, and Peter, or he didn't love James, or, or maybe he doesn't love you as the reader or the child of God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, like in John eleven five, that Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And he's saying, like in John 13, 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, sometimes to the uttermost. He, he loves the disciples, all of them. John 15, verse 9, he quotes Jesus as saying, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And he's speaking to all the disciples. It's a plural you. It's the disciples of Jesus Christ. In John 15, 12, Jesus, John records Jesus as saying, this is my commandment that you have loved one another as I have loved you. Really, all of you. It's a plural you. So John is not saying that I have a very special and unique love that nobody else is able to experience. I'm the one whom Jesus loved. And good luck trying to measure up to that love. That's not at all what's going on when John says, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. What John has come to know is that to love is to live. To be loved is to live eternally. One person said the image of Jesus is most clearly seen and reflected by those who respond most to his love. You say, I want my life to make an impact. I want my life to make a difference in other people's lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. Well, the image of Jesus is most clearly seen and reflected by those who respond most to the love of Jesus. Do you desire to live near enough to Jesus? It was a nearness to Jesus and That's where John keeps coming back. He says, I was the one who who was reclining next to Jesus at the table. He uses this several times, this, this location demarcation. I was the one on his right side. I was next to him. I was even leaning against his shoulder as comrades do. It was the nearness to Jesus that shaped the heart of John to what we know of him today. John became who he was because he kept pressing in nearer to Jesus than what it would seem anybody else was. This is how Jesus changes lives by pressing in near to him. The son of thunder became the disciple whom Jesus loved, whom Jesus loved. And Horatius Bonar said it again in verse number one, not what I am, O Lord, but what thou art. It's all hinged, it's all dependent upon who God is that I'm loved. And so therefore there's nothing I can do to make him love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me less. 
because his love was never dependent upon my doing. It was all dependent upon his being, right? Not what I am, O Lord, but what thou art. I am ungodly, your love. I'm wicked, rebellious. But your love. Well, the love of Jesus Christ had so fundamentally transformed this son of thunder, John, that to hear that he was named, that at first, that he was named the son of thunder at first seems so unbelievable in the last when we read his writings. We, we just, it seems remarkable to us, contradictory. Who is this son of thunder? Because when I read his writings, they're just so tender and gentle. My little children love one another. That does not sound like an angry man. God has so deeply and fundamentally transformed the heart of this son of thunder into becoming the apostle of love. This is what the love of Jesus Christ does to his people. Christ's love becomes the controlling factor in those whose lives are forever changed by it. A disciple called the son of thunder becomes a disciple whom Jesus loved. And this, by the way, is the desire of the Lord for all who will follow him, that the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ will control us. And so our takeaway this morning is number one, that Christ's love controls me in this way, that love is the witness The love of Jesus Christ has so deeply impacted John's view of who Jesus was that at some some of the most significant events, like the Last Supper, like the crucifixion, like the empty tomb, like the seashore at Galilee with the risen Lord, the love of Jesus Christ has so deeply impacted John's view of Christ that at these significant events that happen, he brings it up in the narrative Yes, I was the one who sat at the table hearing that he was going to be crucified and I didn't stand in the way of the guards. I saw him nailed to the cross and my lips were closed. I came to the empty tomb because I didn't believe it was true. And I saw him at the seashore and of course... There he was with me. And in each one of those vignettes where John could easily edit out his own personal narrative and just say, oh, the disciples were at the supper. And we just lose him in the crowd. He says, the one whom Jesus loved was there to my shame, but also to my learning. And as a testimony now, as I look back to it, as the supreme testimony, as he loved me at the supper table, knowing that he was going to the cross. He loved me with his last breath. Son, behold your mother. Knowing that he was dying for my lovelessness. He let me see the empty tomb, even though I didn't believe it was true. I was the first man there. John writes in there and says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, I don't know how he could love someone like me. 
except that I tell you, this is the kind of Christ he is. He had done nothing to stop the trial, nothing to stop the crucifixion. Yet he looked back and he testifies that he was still loved by Jesus Christ. Love shaped his understanding of himself. The love of Jesus shaped his understanding of himself. And the love of Jesus shaped his understanding of Jesus himself. The love of Christ became the content of his witness, not just the influence of it. It became the content. If you want to know love, and chances are, if you're a human being, you want to know love, let me tell you about it a hundred plus times in in my writings. You've got to know this love. Everybody craves love. And it's going to be virtually every other word in my writing. Because I don't want you to miss it. It changed me so fundamentally. The love of Jesus Christ was the content and it was the influence of his witness. He refers to himself in this way in the Last Supper and the cross, alongside of Mary, the empty tomb, and face to face with Jesus. He was there, and looking back, John saw that Jesus had never ceased in loving him. And it's his story, and he's sticking to it in the eternal word of God. It's in better than stone. Jesus loved John. But secondly, not only was love his witness, but it was also his identity. It was his identity. This was John's way of saying that he's not more important than Peter. He wasn't more important than his older brother James, or he wasn't more important than any other disciple. But as he has come to realize what all Christ has done for him, he recognizes that his identity, who he is, has changed. He isn't what others know him as. He is truly and fundamentally that one who is loved by Jesus, the Son of God. And listen, I don't know what your name is here this morning. I I mean, I do, actually. I think I know all your names. What I mean to say is it doesn't matter what your name is this morning. It doesn't matter what job you you have or you don't have. It doesn't matter if you have a house packed full of rugrats or you live by your own, on your own. It doesn't matter if you're an old person or a young person. The fact is that the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood applied to the believer's heart Your identity is lost in the all-consuming new identity. You, like John, don't have to say your name. You're the disciple whom Jesus loved. When you come to know the love of Jesus Christ in such a way you can write a book and never put your name in it and it's still your biography your autobiography. And now that you know the great depths of the love of Jesus Christ, you never have to put your name because that's insignificant. You're the disciple whom Jesus loved. You have become so impressed 
so overwhelmed by the knowledge and the experience of the love of Jesus Christ that you have forgotten your name. It really doesn't matter if others know your name. You're the one who Jesus loves, each of you and all of you. Well, John isn't trying to rob anyone else of of the privilege of saying that they're loved by Jesus. He's simply exulting in it. I'm loved. I'm loved. I'm loved by Jesus. And that's who I am. That's who I am. I'm loved by Jesus. And there are times when the love of Jesus Christ is so deeply felt that all one can think of is that they are specially loved and thought And the thought of God's love for others is not an offense. It's just simply not part of that moment. There are times in private devotion and worship when it is okay to lose yourself in singularity and coming before God and knowing that if no one else in all the world or all world history or in time to come, if no one else is in his presence, you are and you are basking and delighting in the knowledge that Jesus has set his love upon you. And in that moment, you're the only one he has ever died for. That is true, holy worship. And we do that through the week when we're not gathered And it just boils up. And the church of God is this way, that through the week, as you and your private devotion, sure, mingling and gathering with believers throughout the week, but, but it just boils up. And you just feel in, in some other way, in a balanced way, you say, but I, I want to express love of God in a greater way. I need more voices. I need more company. I need, I need, I need to be in a crowd that, that fills up my spirit of worship, my desire to worship in a greater way. So I just want to come bursting in the doors on Sunday mornings. And I want to hear other people, other lovers of God, God lovers, other people who God has set his love upon. I want to hear them too. It's just going to fill me up because it's going to make me, help me understand, oh, on Monday morning, God was so much more greater to me Because what I experience in the gathering of the beloved. Well, lastly, not only is love the witness and love is the identity, but love controls us. It controls us. And that's what we find in in John's testimony. As is the privileged experience of all Christ's disciples like you and I, this love from Jesus has been so deeply experienced that this love doesn't just find itself in this uh, ecstatic feeling, like an emotion, uh, even, even a sense of peace. There's so much more that this love does, and, and really at the pinnacle of what this love does it is it becomes an all-controlling factor in, one, in one's life. God's love becomes a controlling factor in the disciple's life. A controlling factor. You say, well, I really like the peace. I really like the, the vibes of God's love. I really, I love it. I love to feel it. It makes me feel really good and wonderful. But there's other dimensions to the love and other effects of this love. It becomes an all-controlling factor in the disciple's life. We could say John was under the influence of the love of Jesus Christ. And there's power 
in that. There's power in that word, love. And there's power in the, the word and, uh, uh, that we are the beloved of Christ. And so John would agree with the Apostle Paul. Listen, and actually turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. John would find that love would control him. It would be the compelling factor. It would constrain him. It would bind his heart wonderfully unto the purposes of the glory of God and the delight and joy that God is in his life. So he would come alongside, we would say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. It does what? It controls us. The love of Christ controls controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live they might no longer be on control for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised this is the controlling factor what controls you there is only one other thing that controls you apart from the love of god it's your love for yourself There's only two types of controls over our life. A love for self or a love for God. So love is far beyond this wonderful and, yes, true and experiential feeling. And, yes, it has reconciled us who are enemies unto God, but it has brought us into a position of servitude. We are to be controlled by the love of God. And so John says, this love has so changed me that it directed me to be a minister of God. Yes, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. But I want to demonstrate to you the testimony is, my testimony is that this love became a controlling force in my life. Believer, what or who is the controlling force in your life? What's controlling you? What's governing the decisions you're making? What's governing your relationships? What's governing your stewardship? What's influencing your worship or lack of? The power of love is the control of love upon the believer's life. And so if John were to, if I could say, if John were to take 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, he might say something like this. I identify myself as loved by Jesus Christ, because this is all constraining, this is the all controlling reality in my life. This is why I am writing the gospel. This is why I minister. This is why I live Christ's love out in my life. His love controls me. His love has become my identity. His love has become my influence. 
His love has become the content of my witness. His love has become the theme of my story, my story from A to Z. But lastly, his love becomes, it has become the controlling force in my life. Let's pray.